This interview with Jonathan Coleman was recorded in 2016 for an edited version to be used on community radio station Northside Radio 99.3 in Chatswood in Sydney in their Overdrive program. Here is the full interview that reflects his bountiful energy and enjoyment of life. Jonathan Coleman is a radio announcer, television personality, writer and performer. His television broadcasting career started in the late 1970s as a reporter on Simon Townsend's Wonderworld. He's been in movies, television and a lot of radio, including over a decade and a half in the UK. He now appears regularly on television station Channel 10 in Australia, but his love of radio continues with a program each Monday afternoon on community radio station 99.3 FM in Sydney, His motoring career has had its twists and turns, including meeting some famous car people. Let's talk to him about this and other things. Jono, thanks very much for your time. My pleasure, David. And uh, uh, yes, my my motoring career has had uh, many twists and winds along the way. Now, you have in fact met the three amigos of motoring, the Top Gear boys or ex-Top Gear boys now. Yes. Uh, Was that an education to you? It's always an education, meeting Jeremy Clarkson and uh, James May and uh, Richard um, uh, because they have a fantastic chemistry between them. Love them or hate them. Uh, if you switch on Top Gear or the you know the original tro- Top Gear, you usually found something that you liked. And uh, I interviewed Jeremy Clarkson a few times on the radio in the UK, so he was always out plugging a book or a uh, smash wallop crash bang video or DVD for Christmas. And then uh, James May was doing you know books and other things. He's you know d- did his own little TV series about making giant Spitfires out of Lego building blocks and all sorts of things. And then uh, Richard Hammond, was uh, he started off on radio, funnily enough, as a bit of a local radio guy on the BBC. So I've had dealings with them all. And then when they first came over to Australia to do that first Top Gear Live, I was asked to MC the press conference. And that one was just Richard Hammond initially and uh, Clarkson, myself. And then they used a couple of the Australian guys who were on the original Channel 9 Australian version of Top Gear. Uh, which went mm. through a few changes itself. Um, <laughs> so I was hosting this press conference down at The Rocks with, uh, with Clarkson and, and Richard Hammond, and that was pretty funny in front of the media. And Clarkson kept running upstairs to go and have a cigarette up on the roof. And he said, <laughs> I'll, I'll get these guys wound up, because there was quite a few British journos and stringers there as well. So he, uh, he slagged off Gordon Brown, who was the um, Prime Minister at the time, and said, you know, what a boring old Scotsman he was, and tight as most Scots and uh, you know he called him a google-eyed something or other and you know about speed cameras and proliferation of speed cameras on the it, they take all the fun out of driving in the UK and that got press all over the UK of course and a lot of press here with you know Clarkson slags off British PM and then that they when they did the live shows at the Olympic Stadium I think it was then uh, out at uh, Homebush I had to sort of host the event before it for the VIP ticket holders and then after it and uh, it was it was it was quite funny because they and they were obviously being paid well for it because it's I think it was their company putting on the Top Gear live event so you know um, then they came out again so obviously they made some money out of it but uh, you know look they're very you know love my hate them as I say they're very very uh, interesting and controversial especially Clarkson because he's he's always had a love hate relationship because he is 
a journo anyway. He's like writes for the Sun and writes for the Sunday Times. He's the motoring editor. I think the Top Gear team, the original one that they had with those guys, was one of the most popular shows, not only on British TV, but also the biggest selling worldwide show for BBC Worldwide, second only, or maybe even more popular than Doctor Who when they uh, were started selling Doctor Who around the world. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see how their own show goes. I haven't seen it yet. I'm not sure if it's actually started yet, but the, the Matt LeBlanc, Chris Evans version didn't last very well on the BBC. Now it's Matt LeBlanc and there's going to be a few other presenters. So... I think we know where um, most British viewers have gone, and it's not to Top Gear. The interesting thing is I think that the Top Gear boys, the old ones, Jeremy and, and so on, are really good comic actors. Yeah. They use motoring almost as their stage yeah. under which they do glorious twisted reflections and metaphors and things yeah. which are really top thing. The other thing I say about Jeremy, I saw him interview somebody and he started a talk and the interviewer added something more and Jeremy shut up and I thought that guy knows how to interview yeah. because he knew how, that he could say anything anytime he liked but when the, the talent was talking he knew to let him go. And also he knows... I mean, Jeremy's one of those guys that loves music, loves cars, loves motoring. So he's a, a blokey bloke. But the funny thing is his manager is his wife, Francine. So he's all bravado because the one who makes a lot of the decisions in that relationship is, is the missus because that's his manager. So he's very much a enthusiast. And also he has his fan, you know, he's a, a huge fan of Formula One and, and like he... If he's, if he's excited by having a beautiful movie star on or, you know, if it's something like that, he, you're absolutely right. He'll just shut up and he'll listen to what they've got to say because he is, as I say, you know, he's a journalist and he knows how to get the best out of people. And I think that James May and, and Hammond, they all they have great chemistry between the three of them. Plus that, that show had and probably still does have an amazing budget of of a team that is is just specifically top gear cameramen they've got you know drone pilots and helicopter access and you know they are highly thought of throughout Europe especially and then they've got the American team and so it is a it's a big budget show so they they uh, they know what they can do and they and they just make it look fantastic oh the production values are staggering yeah to the point that you've got to watch closely to see them, otherwise just the whole performance of it overtakes you. But if you look at it from production values, in incredible. In fact, you actually worked with Chris Evans on radio for a while, the guy who took over from Jeremy. Yes, I had a very uh, uh, interesting sort of uh, love-hate relationship with Chris Evans because he's not a big fan of Australia or Australians. We, got on, we get on quite well now, but he went through a, an incredible rise in popularity from local radio that we were doing in London and then, then we both worked together for Richard Branson's Virgin Radio and then I was doing the breakfast show with a guy throughout the UK on Virgin Radio and then Chris said I'll come to Virgin Radio he was doing a Saturday morning show and Richard Branson kept saying uh, you should come and do a show more than just one show a week he said I'll do breakfast but you'll have to find somewhere else to put Jono and Russ who we were doing the breakfast show so one Christmas when I was in Australia we got taken off the breakfast show and I got like it I got it I got a fax through the fax machine saying just oh, let yeah. you know that um, nothing personal but you and Russ are coming off breakfast you'll be doing drive time in the afternoon because Richard wants uh, Chris Evans to to do the breakfast show so I did a bit of uh, I you know the, the, in the typical tabloid press they all have stringers in Australia and I was getting lots of phone calls going how do you feel about being 
axed by Chris Evans, and I said, "Oh, look, no, it's not like that." I, you know, I wish him every success, and then I put in a few little sarcastic <laughs> remarks, and then it was, it was on for young and old. So there was a lot of a, there was a bit of paper newspaper squabbling, but we are actually, you know, we actually get on okay now. But there was this sort of. Um, you know, it's the very much the media wars in... And it was, the weird thing was we were working for the same radio station. How did you feel when he failed at Top Gear? I couldn't possibly say. I, I did almost feel like saying I told you so because people were saying, now Chris Evans is a bit of an old sparring partner of yours and he's mellowed a lot over the years, but he got fired from, from, uh, from Virgin Radio because he used to take Fridays off to do another TV show called Thank God It's Friday. And then some Thursdays he wouldn't turn up because he was getting ready for pre-production, but basically going to the pub all day. And then he got fired by Virgin Radio. Then he he sued them, and then they countersued him, and he lost the case, and it cost him seven million pounds. So Ooh. it was like <laughs> it was like going, oh my god. So um, when when the TV show when he took over Top Gear, I'm going, oh, this could be really good, or it could it could go down in flames and well i think it was about a month or two months they lost like two million viewers in that time and i thought well they're gonna have to make changes they've always made changes with presenters on that show because when i first went to england to work on the radio it was 1990 or halfway through 1990 and when i got there top gear had a little bit of jeremy clarks and there was a female presenter there was a northern bloke who did motorbikes so there's always been a sort of movable feast of presenters i think it was just that they they got so popular with clarkson and james may and and richard hammond that they were on a winning formula and as you know um sometimes a winning formula the the egos get out of control and um you know the rest is history they uh, do have a reputation uh, <laughs> particularly of being how should i put it self-confident yeah, overly self-confident, and uh, it's like uh, it's kind of we. Uh, well, I used to say on the radio in England, "Lost in showbiz." It's kind of never read or pub, never never believe your own publicity. And I think that's the good thing about the the tall poppy thing in Australia is that you might be you might be the most famous person in Australia, but it, it's only just a quick fall down the stairs, and you're you're down with everybody else. Your first movie, I think, was Midnight Spares about a speedway driver. You had some pretty significant other stars in that Australian movie production. Yeah, yeah, there was... Um, I mean, I've been lucky over the years. As you said, I started on Kids TV on Simon Townsend's Wonderworld in 1980, and now I'm, I'm, I'm back on Channel 10 again. So Wonderworld was the first sort of C-classified Kids TV current affairs kind of show with four different reporters and Simon Townsend and music videos. And out of that, I got to do lots of things like the radio and be on Triple M for a while, then Triple J, and got to be, appear in little cameos in movies. And one of them was Midnight Spares with Bruce Spence, of course, from Mad oh. Max fame and Stork. And, um, oh, God, who else was that? David Graham Argue. Blunden. Graham Blunden. Oh, yeah, that's right. It was, a, it was fantastic. Uh, I, wor I worked on that movie. I worked with Graham Kennedy on another movie called Stanley. But Midnight Spares was all shot out at Parramatta Speedway. And I was this guy called Wayne Grubb. And I had like a garage a come sort of late night diner where we had 12-inch hot dogs. And it was me and Maggie Blinko. And also... Um, Zoe Caridis, who went on to do lots and lots of things. There's Zoe Caridis and and uh, and her sister, the two Caridis sisters. And I think it was it wasn't Zoe; it was the other sister who did um, Austin Powers. She was in the Austin Powers movies. Um, so they all worked in in my dodgy late night cafe. And then on the sideline, I had this thing called Midnight Spares, which was stealing cars 
uh, mm. to order and then chopping them up in these chop chop houses and then they would be going offshore or it would be like a guy well a blue Mercedes Sports. We steal one off the streets of Double Bay for them and then change all the number plates and everything. And that was, I didn't know it was called, you know, basically rebirthing cars was about getting a midnight spare or, you know, finding yeah. some parts for your midnight spare. Max Cullen was also a part of that as well. Yeah, that was great. Getting your license wasn't an immediate triumph, your driving license? No. When I got my license, I can't even remember what year it was, but I wasn't one of those kids. That, I think I like, like the idea of having a car and being able to drive. To, you know, I lived at home with my mum and dad, which was, which was great, but I liked the idea of a, the freedom of maybe having a little car or even a Volkswagen or whatever. And uh, I made the mistake of buying a, a, a red Fiat 124 Sports I think it was a 1969 Fiat 124 Sport. You couldn't turn the heater off. It supposedly was owned by a little old lady in Canberra, and I bought it. I think it was $2,000. I think my dad lent me maybe $500 or something. But I think it was $2,000, and it cost me... the, The gearbox went, and it took me three times. I had driving lessons. My first driving lessons was the Eastern Suburbs Driving School. I'd never forget it. It was a rainy Thursday night. The guy came to my mum and dad's place at Bronte or across the road from Clovelly Public School. And I said, oh, I don't know if I can do my first driving lesson. Nighttime, it's raining and it's, you know, it was just really bleak and horrible wintertime. And he said, look, you're never always going to be able to drive in good weather. You might as well start with your first lesson in the wet and the rain. So I, I went off with this guy and he's, uh, it was a, what was it? A Carmen gear with oh. a, a dual control so he could stop me if I was about to run into anyone. But it was just, it was frightening because it was up those S bends at Dover Heights all around yeah. there, up and down those. And so it was frightening, but it was actually a good, a good way to get my confidence. But it was an automatic and I ended up doing my 10 or 12 lessons with this guy who was fantastic. And uh, then I went and did my, my test. The guy who I got for my, my test the first time, it was his first day on the job and he was more nervous than I was down at the motor registry at Botany, I think it was. Long story short, I did it three times before I actually got my license and I think my mum told me, she was giving me, a, she said, I'll give you a Valium, that'll make you more calm, you'll be more relaxed. So I actually did my driving test with a Valium, unless it wasn't really a Valium, maybe she just told me it was to calm me down. You learnt on an auto, and the third you bought was a, a manual. Was that an adventurous spirit, a strong ability to adapt, or technical naivety? Maybe that's why the clutch went so fast, but it, it was parked outside my mum and dad's house for about, you know, I'd sit in it and I'd start the engine and I'd, you know, get put it into gear. And then my dad said, look, you're going to have to get some, because in those days you could get your license on an automatic, and then you could buy whatever car you wanted. So yeah. I bought I bought this manual and uh, I had to have another five or six lessons to learn how to drive it. So, you know, you can't do that anymore, but that's how crazy it was. And in my, uh, the first time I went for my driving test, I actually said, now I'm going to go, when I bang on the dashboard, I want you to do, do a left-hand turn. And then he banged on the dashboard. Oh, no, I don't mean left, I mean right. And I actually, <laughs> actually knocked into the back of a... Uh, the back of a truck's bumper bar, just a little teeny touch. And he said, we're going to have to go back to the motor industry and I'm going to have to fail you. It was one of those. It was like, he was more nervous than I was. <laughs> that was number one. Then there was number two. And then there was number three. And I think I got it after number three. I, I think I wore a low cut dress. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, of course, you're going through the experience of uh, one of your daughters is learning to drive. Is, is that something that will enhance your relationship or are you just trying to minimize the damage? I mean, figurative and 
perhaps literally as well. I hope my I hope my son's not hearing this because there's one of them's a daughter and one of them's a son. But that's very funny that you think it's two daughters. There's Oscar, he's my second daughter, and then there's uh, Emily, my first daughter. So both of them have had their uh, L plates and L, you know, the the learner's um, permit. For Oscar's now onto his second one, I think. So basically, it's the I've got the Toyota Corolla downstairs, and my wife drives uh, a Lexus RX three fifty, which is a lovely car, but I drive to Channel 10 every day for Studio 10. So I said, the first one of you kids that gets your P-plates can have this car because I, I put $1,000 down on a new Toyota Corolla about two years ago when they first started learning. They all had lessons and they've, I keep taking Emily, for, I took Emily for a drive on Sunday, but they've still got about, she's got about 80 hours to go. She, you know, she, sees, she says things like, can you reverse it up the driveway? Because I'm still trying to remember which pedal's which. I said, there's only two pedals, Emily. It's like one's fast and one's stop. You know, <laughs> one's go and one stop. Think of it like that. You put it in R, and, and so that's where we're at. And that's she's still got 80 hours to go. And Oscar has probably got even more to go. And he goes, why do you always give Emily driving lessons and you don't do it with me? And it's like, it's the kind of psychological <laughs> hardship that I put myself through because I try and be... I, I mean, my dad... My dad would never take me for a driving lesson because I, I, I think he may have done it once. My mum never had a driver's license. Well, she had a driving instructor in London who used to bring uh, strawberries along and he, um, she said that, she, she, that he was trying to be a little bit too friendly in the, in, the, in the learning vehicle. So she never got a license and my dad was the only one that could drive. But I thought, I don't want to be seen driving around with my dad giving me lessons. So I don't think he ever did it. And it was much better. I think it's, it's a hard thing for a parent to teach their kid to drive without going... Pull over, just pull over, that's it. I'm getting out of the car. <laughs> We've never got to that stage. I'm actually doing some work with someone who is an expert in behavioural change. Yeah. And I don't mean in terms of Nuremberg rallies and revving everybody up, but in terms of relating. And uh, we're working on it, particularly with parents and children, that it becomes an interaction over a, a long period of time that mm. hopefully is constructive rather than destructive. It's an interesting approach. It is. It is interesting. I mean, look, you know, I, I get on fantastically well with my kids and, and my wife and we're all of us. It's a, it's a, a humorous household. Uh, Oscar's 22 and Emily's 19. But I enjoy, I love the fact that we do things together and it's probably the time that they talk the most when you're in the car with either one of them driving along. That's when you find out more about what's going on in their lives. So I enjoy that part of it, but it is quite, you know, Emily's quite good, but it's quite, it's funny when she says things like, we haven't driven for so long. I'm just trying to kind of remember which pedal's which. I'm thinking, oh my God, <laughs> I'm never going to get my new car. I'll be driving this 2007 Toyota Corolla for the rest of my life. Lexus used to be known for its technology more than its looks, although yeah. this big, this is a medium-sized SUV, it's got a very distinctive front look to it. In fact, I think it probably stands out amongst a whole pile of SUV vehicles. Yeah. Are you in, was the looks part of the reason why you bought it? Our one we bought as a demonstrator model. When we first came back from England, we bought the Toyota Corolla, new, and we bought the, the Lexus RX350, as it would be like a sort of um, dealer's demo model. And so it was about five grand cheaper than the usual version. And it was great. And it's, it's, they're both that sort of silver gray. But the new 
RX350, which our next door neighbors have just bought because they're copying, as you see. Um, it's that one with the giant, the big black grill at the front, like yes. the big smiling face, which I like. And I think they look, I think, I think they make a great car. It's kind of, it feels very strong and it feels safe and uh, it has got lots of bells and whistles on it. But I'm so used to driving the, the Toyota Corolla because I've got one of those sort of zippy ones. And yeah. my friend, the car dealer in Chatswood always says, well, you know, You've got a 2007. There's been a few. There's been a few modifications since then. You better hurry up and buy, get your new one because they'll, you know, they'll discontinue that shape and they'll do something else. And but I do love the Lexus. It's got you know lots of um, technology in there. But in some of the, I mean, I just drove a um, a station wagon, a Mercedes brand new station wagon in London. We got a rental car for about four days. We picked it up from the airport from Eurocar, and you get in the car. And it was like learning how to drive all over again because they got their little paddles up near the steering wheel and the, the stupid pinwheel round thing for setting the sat nav. So it goes, do you want to go to Warsaw? <laughs> <laughs> no, central London. <laughs> What's that, Paris? Um, so there's all, that, that's a car with too much technology. Every time I went to put the blinkers on, uh, it, the wipers would start or it would uh, say, check tyre pressure. <laughs> So I'm one of these kind of Luddites who likes a car that's got a few things in it. I'm more interested in the hands-free and the, the sat-nav and what the stereo sounds like. Look, I totally agree with you. I did an interview the other day on that very subject of how complicated cars are becoming. It's a bit like Microsoft. You use yeah. the program, but you only use 10% of it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, I, I, I've spoken to so many people. I mean, working with, with Ida Buttrose, there's a woman who's in her... Like, like 71, 72, something like that. And she said, I just want a telephone that I can send. I want a mobile phone that I can send and receive texts on, maybe emails and make telephone calls on. I don't want to, I don't want to find, oh, that's the dog. He, he doesn't like it when I say Ida Buttrose. Um, <laughs> he, he, like, she just wants a telephone that, that makes and receives telephone calls. And a lot of older people want a phone that is a phone or a car that is a car that has a blinker here, a wipers there. You can put the lights on. You can get the radio station that you want. Not one that can, you know, tell you how get the get get the groceries out of the fridge for you and start cooking dinner. I drive a new car each week, and I can hate a car based on how hard it is to set the radio. Yes. But then again, in England, if I might not take too much more of your time, but in England you had a couple of Renaults, and Renaults had some quirkiness in their times, but you loved them? Yeah, it's funny. I, I um, When I was in England, I started off with a Honda. It was a Honda Shuffle that I don't think ever came to Australia. It was like a sort of square kind of boxy car, four-door hatchback, or I guess five-door mm. hatchback. The Honda Shuttle, which I bought secondhand, which was fantastic, and then I got a different Honda, and then I, I started doing sort of radio ads for, uh, for Renaults, and then I, they had a fantastic TV campaign for the Renault cars then, and they had like a French, sexy French girl going, yes, I love the Renault, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and then I thought, oh, I'll go and have a test drive of a Renault. And I tried the Renault Megane Scenic, and then I tried the Renault Cabriolet, and I said, I'll have one of each, please. And they, were, they, thought, they thought it was you know, Christmas every day. So they gave me, okay, they gave me a very good deal. It was like, I think it was like 14,000 pounds for the, for the, for the scenic, or as they call them in Italy, the Renault Genic. And then in Spain, we got one, but it was called, as a rental car, it was called a Seat. Oh, yeah. It like was made by Fiat. 
I think uh, C-A-T was yeah. um, a Volkswagen group. Oh, yeah, it was bizarre. So it was the same shape as the Renault Megane. So, I, you know, I, I, the, the thing I loved about the Renault Megane was you could basically put three people in the front seat and two in the back or three in the back, and then there was plenty of boot space. It used to go, well, it had two sunroof, kind of moonroof, they were called, uh, and it was an automatic, and it had a good standing stereo, and it fitted both Oscar and Emily and and the beautiful wife in there. So I loved the the, the scenic, and then I thought, what what do I need if I'm in England, which is great weather all the time, as you know. Um, so I got a Renault Megane uh, Cabriolet with a soft top, but one of those electric roofs that you could open up when the sun came out for those three hours during summer. And uh, when it wasn't summery, I'd drive around Regent's Park with a with a sort of like a a woolen beanie on my head. I remember one time the cops drove up next to me because I had I had Tom Petty and Free Falling playing so loud on the stereo. They came up and went, "We should have known, bloody Jono, you must be <laughs> bloody mad, mate. It's you're in London. It's the middle of winter, and you got a bloody sports car." <laughs> it was hilarious. How did you go? In the UK, was it a bit of a part of the Aussie invasion? You, you were on radio for over a decade. Yeah, sixteen years. I was in I was in England. We went nineteen ninety. Margot and I got married at Taronga Zoo, sort of beginning of nineteen ninety, January. Uh, she was working in advertising, making TV commercials. She came to London with me. Then she started working with an Australian director called Alex Proyas, who now does movies and things. So she went to LA. We got married. I went to England, got a job on satellite TV, uh, and it turned out as a six-month contract, which turned into 16 years. Both the children were born in London, so it just my contract just kept getting extended and extended. And then the BBC contract, and then Virgin Radio, and then Chrysalis Radio. So it was, uh, it was amazing. It was like reinventing my career because I'd never, ever worked in England before. I came to Australia as a 10-pound pom on the boat when I was seven years old with my mum and dad. So it was fantastic. It was a great time to be there. It was the end of Thatcher, the beginning of John Major, and then the Tony Blair sort of honeymoon period when, you know, England and the UK suddenly got this sort of zest for living and Britpop and minis. Were, everyone was driving minis and the Jaguar got reinvented and Range Rovers. And uh, it was it was a very interesting and exciting time to be there. It wasn't all fabulous because... You know, there were still security problems with the IRA and the occasional mm. bomb going off. But uh, we didn't come back to Australia till 2007. But, you know, it was great that, that driving around there and working on the radio and working on the television and then doing stuff back to Australia three times a week for sunrise, people would say, are you in, are you in England now? Are you still in England? Are you back here now? Or they get confused. And I think that's a good way to be when you're in show business. Keep people confused. <laughs> John, I've taken a lot of your time, but I do appreciate it. It's lovely to have a talk. Thanks very much. My pleasure. I'll, I'll go out and, and uh, take the car for a spin around the block now. I'll, I'll choose one of my 15 vehicles and take it for a spin. <laughs> <laughs> I'm prepared to perpetuate any myth you'd like. Yeah, like John Laws, I'll go downstairs and get one of the Lexuses out. John, thanks again. I'll, I, I appreciate it. Bye-bye. My pleasure, David. And uh, anytime you need any, any uh, you know, rent a gob, I'm your man. I might get you to review a car. How's that? Oh, God, that'd be funny. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. <laughs> All right, mate. Thanks again. All right. See ya. And that's Jonathan Coleman, and we were talking some of his motoring experiences and life experiences here on FM 99.3. 
Overdrive is a radio and podcast program featuring road tests, interviews and features on motoring and transport. More information is available at drivenmedia.com.au and podcasts on Spotify or iTunes.